0: seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed,
1: the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show, everyone. Last week, we explored Vogue magazine during the 1950s, and that was the tenure of one of its lesser known editor-in-chiefs. Jessica Daves. And while we can all appreciate 1950s Vogue as a representative of a golden age of fashion and fashion photography in fashion publications, it is also very important that we acknowledge Vogue magazine's role in perpetuating exclusively and by default exclusionary white beauty and fashion standards and ideals, which is why we wanted to follow up last week's episode with this one.
0: Yeah, which is why today's conversation with Dr. Victoria Rose Pass is so incredibly, well, it's actually very fascinating, but it's also very, very important. Part and parcel to what Victoria refers to as this, quote unquote, fashioning of white femininity within the pages of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and other fashion magazines of this era of the early 20th century. I mean arguably into today, we'll get into that later, but is this ethnic masquerade. So white women modeling to readers of the magazines, the power to essentially put on and take off different cultures. So today we're focusing specifically on the 1920s and the 30s. But like I said, the ideas of cultural appropriation and fashion are clearly still conversations (laughs) we're having today.
1: And just a little bit about Victoria before we get started. She's an assistant professor at the Maryland Institute College of Art, where she teaches courses in design, history, and visual culture. She is a specialist in visual culture, particularly in the areas of design and fashion. Her research considers the history of fashion culture in the 20th century and focuses specifically on issues of gender and race. So, Victoria, or as I know you, Vicki, welcome to Dressed.
0: Vicky, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks so
1: much for having me.
2: It's really exciting to be here.
0: Yeah, so a lot of your research has centered around the intersections of race, cultural appropriation, and American and European fashion magazines. And I'm really curious if you could just tell us a little bit about what brought you to this topic.
2: When I was getting my PhD, I was in a visual and cultural studies program, and I came from a background in art history. So I've never really, like, formally studied fashion history. (laughs) So I have kind of an interesting background coming, coming into this. And I ended up working on fashion and surrealism for my dissertation. And that led me to the question I was kind of asking is how how did surrealism infiltrate the fashion world and how did fashion designers use concepts from surrealism? And the argument ended up really being that there were a lot of designers, folks like Elsa Schiaparelli, who's probably the most known, who I argued were actually active participants in surrealism rather than just kind of appropriating surrealist ideas for their designs. Um, They're often sort of sidelined in that very patriarchal history of surrealism (laughs) in in art history and fashion itself is you know totally sidelined in art history so as I was doing this research one of the things that I was noticing because I was literally sitting down with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar paging through from really from like the 19 teens through the early 40s I was noticing all of these places where um, garments from other cultures, non-Western, non-European, non-American cultures were being referenced and represented in all these ways that were really surprising to me. And in part of my research, I found these photographs. It sort of started with Man Ray, who was a surrealist artist who had worked in the fashion magazines. He worked for, he worked for French Vogue for all, but he mostly worked for Harper's Bazaar in the U.S. And I found this series of photographs he'd taken called um, La Modo Congo, the fashion in Congo, which were of models wearing Congolese hats. And the models were all French women or women who were in France. Most of them were white, uh, with one exception, Addie Finland, who was his lover at the time, who was a Black woman from Guadeloupe originally, but she lived in Paris. And... I was, like, fascinated by these photos. They appeared in Harper's Bazaar, and it turns out that the hats belonged to a a milliner who was French but had uh, moved as a young woman to New York and started her business there, Lily Dashe. She bought these hats from the Congo in Paris, not totally clear when, and she did a collection based on them. And there's a whole story, if you go on Google Books, you can find it in Life Magazine, about these hats, they were part of her launch of her new building that she just built in New York. So it was part of this very like splashy kind of publicity tour that she was doing. And she made hats for, you know, modern white women in 1937 based on hats worn by men in the Belgian Congo. And I was like, what? <laughs> it just kind of made my brain explode. Like what, What? I'm like reading this article and I'm thinking like, why did white women in 1937 Jim Crow's laws are in full force. Racism is in full force. Right. And they want to wear hats that look like hats worn by men in the Belgian Congo. Like what is this about? And so I think that question has has propelled this this research since then because there were so many other examples and like that was a story that kind of drew me in and it was a research rabbit hole that I've just kept falling down really trying to ask this question of why Oftentimes, at moments of peak racism and xenophobia in America or Europe, do we simultaneously see these appropriations of garments, bodily characteristics, hairstyles from cultures that are being othered um non white cultures so it, it's it's a kind of it's it, it's become like this kind of fascination for me in thinking about how are these references used to construct whiteness as as a as a white scholar white Jewish scholar you know that's my positionality in all of this and so for me it's about my research is in this area is really about examining how fashion is used to construct whiteness and white femininity in particular in these different historical periods and i hope that that will kind of inform you know how designers grapple with these questions now. And I, I teach, um, at Maryland Institute College of Art, I teach designers, um, and artists. So I know it's a question that's acute for them thinking about like, how do I, how do I navigate this? How do I position myself, whatever I identify as within this, you know, world where things are being appropriated right and left and how do I do my work responsibly? So, yeah.
0: We are here today to talk about your research, which centers around the ways in which race and ethnicity were quite literally co-opted and then dressed on white women's bodies in the early 20th century. As modern fashion in particular was a vehicle for this sort of what you term quote-unquote ethnic masquerading, I find it only fitting to start with one of the pioneers of modern fashion, Paul Paré, whose Orientalism makes him an excellent place to start our discussion on fashion and cultural appropriation, especially because his 1910-1911 collections were really centered around invoking, you know, these erotic and exotic dreamscapes of the Orientalist fantasy.
2: Yep. Paul Poiret example from 1911 is a, a pretty rich one, and I think it's it's a good way to sort of set the stage for some of the examples that I'm looking at in the 1930s. So in 1911, Paul Poiret was launching this collection, particularly collection that included what he called harem trousers. Right. So this bifurcated garment for women, which is you know 1911. Still pretty radical for women to wear trousers of any kind. And if you think to the you know the century before that, in the 1850s, you had the bloomers, which were part of the suffragist movement. Suff- suffragettes wore them for a very brief period, in part because they were so controversial um, that all people wanted to talk about was like, "Oh my God, women are wearing pants! The world's <laughs> on fire!" And they were like, "Y'all, we are just trying to get the vote here and get some rights, Be and it's easier for us." It.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's easier for us to travel on trains and go give speeches. Wearing these, but you know, it didn't quite work out. So that was kind of the, the history uh, associated with it. So Poiret is really trying to market this garment in a way that it will not be associated with feminist politics, it will not be associated with women being perceived as emasculating men. So he uses Orientalist tropes that were very much a part of popular culture in France and and in the U.S. too, but especially in the context of uh, France and Europe where, where he was working as a way of marketing these garments. So he threw this big party that he called the Thousand and Second Night Party. And his wife, Denise, who was sort of his favorite model and muse, was dressed in the harem trousers. And he was dressed as a sultan. And the idea was that, you know, he, as the sultan, had this sort of harem of of women that served his pleasures, um, and so it was a way of of taking this garment, which had been originally appropriated um, from Turkish garments and Algerian garments by suffragists as more comfortable mode of dress, and attaching this whole fantasy storyline to it, you know, tied to the stories of Shahrazad and so forth. Um, and Minha Tifam, who's a, a Fantastic fashion scholar um, has written about this, I think, really brilliantly in an essay called Paul Poiret's Magical Techno Oriental Fashions. This is from 2013, and she talks about the the sort of party and the way that Poiret sets all this up as kind of mitigating the crisis of masculinity presented by women wearing trousers and by posing as this Oriental man. It's It's not he, the white designer, who's emasculated by his wife wearing trousers, it's the Oriental man who is sort of emasculated and castrated in this. So it's a way of kind of placing the the burden in a sense of this, of the shocking fashion onto a different culture and also associating it, I think, with a different set of characteristics. So Orientalism, another story as old as colonialism, because in a sense, Orientalism are these stories that uphold and support colonization. So typically these are stereotypical ways of thinking about cultures in North Africa, the Near East or Turkey. And those cultures are presented by artists within literature and in our case, fashion as being decrepit, corrupt, you know, they're in need of the um, imperial, you know, power to sort of set them straight and they're also importantly depicted as being like fixed in history like not not moving forward not progressing um and so they need that you know imperial colonizer to to sort of br- bring them up to date quote unquote and of course it's edward said who talks about and coins this term Orientalism in his work in 1978, his book on the subject, um, and he talks about imagined geographies in relationship to Orientalism. So he's saying, you know, this isn't real. This is a fantasy that's cooked up by the the West, uh, by the Occident, is the, is the term that he uses, to define the Occidental or the Western self. And so that's, I think, what's almost always at play here is that the uh, western white self is defining itself against the other even sometimes when the white body is appropriating the garments of a, a body that is othered racially or ethnically or culturally
0: well it's an about and it's about power dynamics too right because you're and that's so much about what's central to cultural appropriation is that is those uneven power dynamics, is the colonialist um, construct of white versus the other. The white people have more power and therefore they have the ability to kind of put on and off these different cultures at will, right? Whereas a person who is not white that is living in a white society might not have that choice. You know, there's just so many different dynamics at play there. And I think what's also really important in Orientalism and especially with Poiret's designs is talking about the eroticizing and exoticizing of the, the quote-unquote other within fashion or within the orientalist myth fantasy that is created of this far east or whatnot.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And with orientalism as well as primitivism, which is a related but not exactly the same concept, both of those, at the heart of both of them is sexuality. They're they're all about sexuality and uh, and particular kinds of constructions of sexuality that, you know, in the case of Orientalism, it becomes the kind of the, the privilege of the fashionable white female body to take on that exoticized sexuality that is stereotypically associated with for instance, just the idea of the harem, right? Like that's a kind of fantasy. There are, you know, paintings upon paintings upon paintings in the 19th century made in Europe of harems. They were the subject of this sort of fascination, right? Because it's um, a representation of polygamy. So that's a way of othering the people uh, who the French and the British and so forth are trying to subjugate colonially and saying like, oh, they marry multiple women. We're horrified by that. But also we're kind of fascinated Fascinated. and we want to paint. <laughs> Means of it, and like look at this and think about this because isn't it kind of exciting and cool? And you know, it's for a male audience, right? So it's about titillating that that white male European audience, and and in the same way, yeah, the 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 clothing and the harem trouser are a way of the white female body, the fashionable white female body, and when I say that, I mean like a kind of normative size for the period. There's a lot of different kinds of elements that I think go into the construction of like, which white fashionable bodies are allowed to have this kind of access. But that, that, that person, that woman is allowed to sort of briefly take on those sexualized characteristics of the denizen of the harem and, you know, wear them to a party or whatever, and then take them off and put on something else. And it's not her body that is sexualized. It's the clothes that are sexualized. So it's a way of really, I think, mitigating and negotiating the expression of sexuality through fashion. And so th- the appropriations that that white women use in, you know, especially, um, I think, within this period, although I think, like, it extends even into our own, frankly, are a lot about mitigating the um, women expressing their sexuality in a public, white women in this case, expressing their sexuality in a public way, but, like, making it Okay, because it's not really me; it's my clothes, right? And I can take those off and put something different on.
0: And that's what's so interesting too about Poiret is, you know, jupe collot or pants, skirt, harem trousers, as they came to be known, is that he was very, very specific that these were to be worn only in the privacy of one's home, um, whereas other designers were kind of pushing them out there into the public. Poiret was very much playing into that fantasy of like this is like an at-home sexy leisure ensemble or whatever that a woman can adopt but only few would actually see I suppose yeah would you mind just defining primitivism for our audience and maybe orientalism too since we're going to be talking about those in relation to fashion specifically
2: Sure. So, um, and I should say I'm, I am drawing, you know, my draw my understanding of this from, from art history, um, from scholars like Abigail Solomon Godot and Linda Nochlin who've, who've written about this. And so, so Orientalism is a kind of exotifying structure. It's usually looking at cultures. It's usually Europe or uh, America, white Europeans, white Americans looking at cultures from North Africa, the Near East, or Turkey. Sometimes it expands to include the rest of Asia. It's it's an imaginary geography, as Edward Said said. So it's not you know, it's not fixed in its boundaries because it's, it's all made up, but it constructs those societies in such a way as to support colonialism. So it constructs them as um, being incapable of taking care of themselves, that they, that those societies have these kinds of beautiful uh, traditions, but they're not adept at taking care of them. So often in paintings, for instance, you see these sort of like crumbling um palaces and things like that to the sense that oh we must step in as colonizers and and help these societies um so they're often also depicted as corrupt and um the men of these cultures are frequently feminized in these kinds of depictions so it's it's a way of defining the colonizer and the um, and the West against you know these cultures and reinforcing and supporting uh, colonization of those cultures. So in a, in a sense, Orientalism acts as a kind of propaganda for colonization, um, and it exists all all across you know cultures, painting, music. If you think about the Ballet Russe, for instance, which is a contemporary and a huge influence on Paul Poiret, um, you know that's that's a perfect example. Primitivism is referencing a a different set of cultures most of the time. It's usually referencing cultures in sub-Saharan Africa, um, Oceania, which is sort of like this, you know, huge area of the Pacific (laughs) that encapsulates, you know, Australia and New Zealand and Papua New Guinea and Micronesia and, you know, the many, many, many islands, Hawaii, and primitivism tends to focus on the naive and as I said before, both of these constructions are deeply deeply imbued with sexuality so they're both different ways of kind of uh, hypersexualizing the cultures that they're looking at and the, the both the women and men but especially the women in those cultures within primitivism, this idea of the kind of the primitive quality, quote unquote, or the naivete of these cultures is a way of framing that sexuality as sort of, of pure, of um, almost like sexuality in the Garden of Eden. It's a kind of fantasy of being able to go up, go back in time, which if you think about an artist like Gauguin, you know, that was his fantasy. He's, I'm going to go to Tahiti so I can go back in time and get out of modern industrializing Europe and, you know, go back to another place. He wasn't going back in time. He was just going back to a place where he could exploit the people, particularly the women that lived here, lived there, and, you know, create this fantasy to send back to Europe. None of the paintings that he painted there represented what Tahiti actually looked like in that period. So this is, again, like Orientalism, a, a fantasy that's, that's being built. So primitivism is this, this cultural attitude that reinforces racist ideologies, again, like Orientalism, and it, and it supports colonization and imperialism. So even if you have individual artists who frame themselves, as you sometimes do, as anti-colonial the structures they're using are inherently supporting, uh, colonialism. And within primitivism too, you, you often have, uh, this kind of sexual dynamic of the kind of the quest for the other, which I mean, Gauguin is the perfect example of that, but there are tons of other ones too, Um, or a quest for an object that's sort of outside of Western um, aesthetics. But within that, the artist or, you know, in our case, the designer is often framed as the sort of important subject there who has the capability of seeing something beautiful within that quote unquote primitive object. So the white artist is always centered, the white designer is always centered. Um, And I think that's a really important thing for thinking about the idea of appropriation, you know how is the the white person designer in power centered within that, and it's their it's their taste, their eye, their ability to see something in another culture that is centered rather than the amazing thing that came from that other culture. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, absolutely. And that's actually a perfect transition to my next question, which takes us into the 1920s, art deco era. So many fashion designers, interior designers, artists being influenced by Africa, which just kind of becomes this homogenous, it's a, it's a continent, becomes this homogenous place. You know, all these different cultures become this kind of, you know, again, um, kind of fantasy Africa, right? So um, really big inspiration to both art and fashion in the 1920s. And I'm hoping you can tell us about the Congolese woman, Noboso Drew, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, of the Mongbetu Betu people, um, and how her hairstyle actually sparked a trend in millinery that is still being referenced well into the 21st century.
2: Yeah, so this is a pretty fascinating story, at least to me. In 1924, there was an expedition across the Sahara Desert sponsored by the French car company, Citroën. And it was about selling their cars, Um, like, look at the power of our cars to, you know, cross this this landscape. And uh, it was this kind of multimedia extravaganza. There were artists on the trip, photographers, a film was made, they collected things that were then exhibited. So it was this this huge thing (laughs) happening that was well covered in the media in both Europe and the U.S. And the photographer, one of the photographers with the expedition, his name was Georges Spec And he took many photographs, including one of this woman named Nobo Sodru. She was a member of the Mungbetu people, and they lived in um, what was formerly called Zaire and is now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. She was the wife of King Tuba. And of the eight thousand photographs that Spec took as part of this trip, this was very much the most circulated image of this trip. And uh, like most of my research, it kind of follows me. Like I, I've I've written about this, and then I keep I keep finding more references to it. So the the photographs circulated in all different contexts in books. The photographs appeared in National Geographic. They were on postcards, um, all different kinds of things. Then they also were used in advertisements and in movie posters um, and all sorts of things like that. And the hairstyle which Nobo Drew wears in this photograph, the, the photograph, I should probably describe it, It's you can see she's not wearing any clothing over her torso. So you see her breasts, and it's sort of from just below her breasts up. And she's in profile, and you see this amazing hairstyle that she has. She has an elongated skull that's created through this skull elongation process that was practiced by Meng Betu men and women, and uh it's then her hair is built onto this reed structure and made into the shape of kind of a funnel. So it's this really beautiful um, shape. And what's what's interesting is that, this is actually a hairstyle that was not quote unquote traditional as we were talking about, but one that very much changed, um, over time. So there is a tradition of, um, of skull shaping and elongation practiced by that was practiced by the Mungbetu. So in the second half of the 19th century, women tended to wear a kind of beehive shaped basket. And this, More like conical or funnel-shaped quaffer comes into fashion around the turn of the 20th century. And it was a status symbol for the Hmong Betu, as you can imagine. Like, you know, it takes a lot of upkeep. You have to sleep in a certain way to preserve this beautiful hairstyle. And it tended to be worn at public functions, usually by members of the ruling class. So the, the photograph, Ina Schellkraut, who's an anthropologist, who's written about art and uh, cultural production of the to, talks about it as becoming a kind of logo for Belgian colonialism. So you have the uh, movie poster for the expedition film it's used on. It's used on ads for the expedition, but also ads for other colonial exhibitions in 19, 1931, 1937, and uh, lots of other people appropriate it as well. And then the hats. <laughs> so uh, in 1926, Madame Agnes makes a hat or designs a hat. Um, and the, all of the, the magazines around this time talk about it as being influenced by the quasi of noir, being influenced. They specifically reference the Congo women's uh, hairstyles. And she actually makes hats that reference like the older, more kind of beehive style, but also the funnel-shaped And I think really fascinatingly, one of the models for the funnel shape in one of the French fashion magazines, L'Officiel, is Josephine Baker, who never would have appeared as a model in an American fashion magazine, but in French fashion magazines appeared from time to time. So I think that starts to suggest the ways in which this reference to an African style was being connected with African-American music and dance embodied by Josephine Baker and jazz music and the popularity at that time and the ways in which African-American culture, uh, which is a huge idea, and African culture, which is also, as you pointed out, it's a continent, um, is all kind of simmered down into these particular images. And I think that's kind of what happens to... Noboso Drew's hairstyle. It just becomes a kind of icon, not even just for the Belgian Congo, but just for Africa in general in this period. And even now, because you can, you see this image um, all over the place even now. So you have Harlem Renaissance artists, I think maybe most interestingly, so African-American artists who are part of the Harlem Renaissance who are um, exploring ideas about Afrocentrism and um, adopting African motifs and images in their artwork. So Aaron Douglas in particular uses the image on the cover of an issue of Opportunity Magazine and also in his murals for the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library, which is now the Schomburg Center in New York. So I think what's, what's interesting is that as with artists in the Harlem Renaissance who were using this image in a sense, reclaiming it. I think what Aaron Douglas is really doing is claiming it as this image of black beauty and using that um, and using this, you know, tie to Africa to create a particular kind of political image for the the movement that is the Harlem Renaissance. I think you also see contemporary designers like Ruth Carter, who did the costumes for Black Panther, who uses it on um, Justa's head as sort of her crown, and Beyonce, uh, who sports the hairstyle in the music video for Sorry. You know, they're I think using it in very in very similar ways, but with the, that sort of addition that they're constructing kind of Afrofuturistic narrative, right? Of sort of um, using African forms to construct a narrative about the future, which is explicitly about deconstructing those primitivist narratives that construct Africa, again, an entire continent, as outside of, of history. And so that, I think that Afrofuturist narrative is is a really important intervention into the kinds of constructions that we see historically of Africa. Um, One of the other images that I've run across that's one of my absolute favorites is um, actually several photographs of Billie Holiday, great jazz singer, wearing earrings in the 1950s that are referencing Nobo Soju. They're interesting because they're head-on, they're not the profile. But they're um, I I love the images because she wore them a lot so they must have been a favorite pair of hers and they're very striking because they're quite large, and I see that too perhaps as her own reclamation of of that image where you know a white consumer buying the same earrings would have been doing something different with them and there's all sorts of jewelry with that there I mean I think perhaps. There's, it's hard to pick the most crass appropriation, but yeah. perhaps the most crass was the hood ornament that was designed for Citroën by an artist named uh, Francois Bazin. I suppose I shouldn't be shocked by this, but his granddaughter, Julie Bazin, has made a business for herself of reproing this hood ornament among others. The others included things like uh, geese and elephants. So you can see the way that Nobo so drew a person is used as another sort of trophy from this expedition. um, And she is reproducing them as jewelry um, and as sculptures. Um, So you can, you can see, see that on Instagram. To this day? To this day. Oh yeah. Like she just started last year.
0: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer she's going to be able to do that in today's current climate. (laughs) I I really, I hope someone shuts her down. I
2: really do. Because I just, I saw it when I was doing research on this. And I was like,
0: are you serious? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, I think people are going to probably, I think more than one of our listeners is probably going to look her up. So let's see how that works. Yeah. That'd
1: be great. Please do.
0: For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress
1: listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries?
0: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So this idea of white women putting on and off different ethnicities. Um, you call it ethnic masquerading, um, which I think is particularly apt. It's especially prominent in fashion magazines of the 1930s. Um, but of course, the white women featured masquerading in these magazines are models who are being told what to wear. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of fashion magazines, um, like staff, like the editors, the executives, the photographers, advertisers, who are all really a big part of creating this ethnic masquerade. These fashion magazines are in the business of inspiring consumption. Why was this a fantasy they wanted to sell?
2: I th- I think it's part of the kind of fantasy of self-transformation tra- that's at the heart of fashion magazines. I mean, I think it's still at the heart of fashion magazines. Right. Um, and so they're selling this kind of myth that you can, you know, put something on and transform yourself. Like you can, you can get the man, you can get the job, you can be a CEO, like you can have a perfect, like whatever that fantasy is. So they're showing you the sort of the possibilities of of reshaping the body and and reconstructing the body in these different ways. And so I think that's part of what makes these ethnic masquerades appealing to them, that it's part of this. Another scholar that I tend to think a lot about in this is the great Black feminist scholar Bell Hooks, and in 1992, it's it's quite old, but I think it's it's still really relevant. It's so weird for me to say something from the 90s is quite old. Anyway, <laughs> uh, eating the others, this essay that that she writes, and she talks about. I'm actually going to quote her because I think her words are really apt. She writes, quote, the commodification of otherness has been so successful because it is offered as a new delight, more intense, more satisfying than normal ways of doing and feeling. Within commodity culture, ethnicity becomes spice, seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture, end quote. And I think you know you see that in the magazines that these representations of quote unquote ethnic clothing um, of clothing that's coming um, from uh, places outside of Europe and america is is a kind of spice. it adds it adds something, it adds a kind of liveliness and it's interspersed of course with with travel stories, which are about this sort of construction of cosmopolitanism and modernity. the um, mobility is a key part of modernity, the ability to move. And the scholar Ilya Parkins um, has written about this in relationship with fashion too. And she talks about this idea of figurative mobility that's offered to white women as they um, take on these garments. So in a sense, I think part of the fantasy that magazines offer women is a fantasy of mobility, of moving from one state to another, moving maybe even from one class to another, from one sort of societal position to another, and moving from one place to another, even if it's just in reading the pages of a magazine, even if it's just reading a travel story in a magazine or looking at a fashion spread that's shot in a place that's very far away from where where you are reading the magazine. Um, so I think that's that's a big sort of part of it, and I think that's an important way of thinking about what these magazines are doing because you know they're they're taking designs that are made by well-known designers of the period, but they're writing a narrative that kind
0: of reinforces them, right? Can you talk about the different types of clothing pieces that were appropriated by fashion designers and subsequently marketed in fashion magazines during the 1930s?
2: Yeah, so there's there's so many in the 30s. It's, it's really astonishing. So one of, I think, the interesting narratives that I Um, Have found in that period is that the kind of poire orientalism and trousers narrative is one that we see really continuing. So, in so many images, photographs, fashion illustrations in the magazines, and I'm speaking particularly about Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. I want to be clear here. In this period, we see trousers being presented to the reader as a kind of orientalist garment. So they're being styled with turbans or they're being styled with, you know, Moroccan mules. So the the context in which they're photographed and the rest of the styling of the model is often... creating this kind of Orientalist fantasy around them. And so my theory about this is that this is, again, about sort of reinforcing this um, use of Orientalism as a way of of feminizing what is a masculine garment, right? Or what is perceived anyway in Europe and the U.S. as a masculine garment. And I think that that's really interesting. So it, it just continues to reinforce that narrative of feminizing the othered man, the, the quote-unquote oriental man, and then, you know, allowing women to take his trousers as opposed to taking, you know, the white man's trousers, <laughs> <laughs> quite literally. We also see lots of references to um, Arab robes, uh, burnous cloaks, saris become really popular in the 1930s, head wraps worn by uh, Black women in the Caribbean, for instance, are, sh- are shown. Um, turbans, sombreros. Also, colors are frequently described as being like, you know, Mexican colors or Indian colors or Peruvian, you know. So uh, color language um, is often used um, as a way of marketing and selling different styles and trends to readers. There's also this whole genre, which Really continues, I think, right through the 1960s of coolie clothing, coolie hats, coolie suits and trousers. Coolie is a pejorative term that's been used to refer to all different kinds of labor, but in the U.S. context is usually to East and South Asian labor uh, who came to the America as indentured um, laborers, and the most prominent members of that labor force in the U.S. were men from China who um, played a critical role, of course, in building the transcontinental railroad. And again, I think this is another example of garments becoming popular at the same moment that we have, in this case, xenophobia and, and racism around this um, immigration. So. The first immigration laws in the U.S. were about particularly these laborers from China who were coming to work on the railroad. And so in 1862, um, Abraham Lincoln signed an act, and this is, um, the term Cooley was actually in this act, an act to prohibit the quote-unquote coolie trade by American citizens and American vessels. So trying to prevent immigration of people from China to come to the U.S. And the first laws restricting immigration to the U.S. were the Immigration Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. So these were the first immigrants who were really explicitly restricted in the U.S. And those acts also prevented those who were. Already in the US from becoming citizens. In the 1920s, there were uh, new laws passed to bar immigrants from Asia and favoring white immigrants from Northern Western Europe. And so at the same time, as we see those laws going into effect, you start to see, you know, coolie caps for you know your summer holidays, and I think this is also again this way of taking, for instance, the trousers associated with the style, and othering that garment in a sense, and saying like, you know, this is not a, a white woman taking a white man's pants; it's a white woman taking a Chinese man's pants. So. That somehow mitigates that sexual and gendered anxiety around um, the the youth of that garment.
0: Yeah, and it feminizes the the Chinese man too, which is really central to that othering and racialization too, because they're less than a man a, a white man, right? Yes. So it's
2: still it's supporting those narratives about keeping those immigration laws in place too. Right. So it's doing the same kind of thing that like Orientalism was doing in nineteenth century France.
0: And I have to wonder too, because you know, we try to avoid presentism and looking back and judging women in the 1930s for making these decisions that are, you know, these biases and ideologies are deeply, deeply ingrained in their society. I mean, they're ingrained in our society now, and we're just learning about them too, many people, you know. Um, so I just I have to wonder what women and i'm not necessarily asking you to answer this question but um it's kind of just wondering what women actually thought when they were adopting and wearing these garments because i doubt it was like a conscious choice for them to present themselves as superior um to these other and different cultures but perhaps it was just like i said built into the very dna of, of the fashion industry of their life as a white woman in america or europe or wherever they're consuming these garments
2: i think you know White supremacy works in a sense because it's this subconscious thing that is just becomes part of our everyday lives and, you know, teaches those of us who are white that we are actually entitled to all the stuff that we get. Right. Which is why it's so hard to disentangle because we have to learn like, no, we're not entitled to all this stuff. We're getting this because we're white. You know, so this isn't like just like I earned all of this, right? So that those narratives are just so deeply entrenched that I think they become subconscious. But you know, on the other hand, I also think it's important to avoid the idea of like, oh, they were just a product of their time. <laughs> yeah, um, no, because <laughs> I think that you know that that allows us to excuse a lot of yeah yeah a lot of stuff that we shouldn't excuse. And so I think, I think it's, it's, it's complicated, but I think it, it, it teaches us, I think, looking at this history, the really complicated ways in which femininity and gender are tied so inextricably with race and that the construction of white femininity and modern white femininity so often came at the expense of of women of color, um, people of color generally, but I think particularly women of color. And I think that's essential to the narrative. I mean, I, I see corollaries too. you know, we're revisiting the women's suffrage movement and, you know, the 100th anniversary of white women getting the right to vote in the U.S., right? So, you know looking back on that history that's a that's also a really imperfect history that in many ways um white women's votes came at the expense of black women's votes and so i think it's important to to reassess these histories and to just see just how very complicated they are because if unless we really reckon with that we're not going to be able to to deal with them in the present i think i mean that's that's why i do history you know because i think that i think that understanding how things happened in the past can help us understand how to how to
0: disentangle them
2: in the present at least that's my hope.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I do want to make sure we talk about um the women of color that do appear in the pages of fashion magazines during this time because they they are there, they're not completely excluded. Um but there are definitely clear differences between their depiction and those of their white counterparts. So Princess Karam of Karputhala is a great example of kind of a fashionable woman of color being presented in, in fashion magazines during the 30s.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you occasionally see women movie stars like Anna Mae Wong and Dolores Del Rio. You'd certainly see them more if you were looking at movie magazines, but they do also sometimes appear in um, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Their ethnicity is usually commented on (laughs) in some way. Marian Anderson's actually the opera singer is the first Black woman to appear in Harper's Bazaar, I think in any American fashion magazine, if I'm not mistaken, but you know, she's in the role of performer. So she's not modeling clothing. May Wong and Dolores Del Rio are actually like featured as, as models of clothing. So that's kind of an interesting distinction, and I think maybe tells us something about racialized hierarchies within American culture in this period. And as I said before, you know, French fashion magazines are a bit different. So Josephine Baker does appear as a model. Um, and you know, she sold her own line of hair care products and tanning oils and things like that. So in France, things play out differently, although I would argue no less problematically than they do in the US. The lines are much sharper in the US, I think is how I would describe it. But Princess Karam is really a fascinating story. So um her full name is Rani Sita Devi of Karputhala. And she married uh, Karamjit Singh, who is one of the Maharaja of Karputhala's uh, younger sons in 1928. And then in 1934, she took one of her first of many trips to Paris. She was only 14 years old. So she was a very young woman. And she just like totally seems to have enraptured fashionable Paris in this period. And she also captured the attention of American vogue. And in 1937, Vogue actually declared her one of the best dressed women in Paris. She frequented a lot of the couture salons, um, had, had beautiful clothes made for her, and appeared in fashion magazines both in saris as well as in um, these fashions that were made for her by uh, places, designers like Pacquin. Um, and so forth. So there were a whole bunch of designers in 1934, including Elsa Schiaparelli, Alex, who later becomes Madame Brez, a confusing story, but same person. Um, <laughs> and they became totally fascinated with the saris, and so they started making saris. Um, and so 1934, there's like this little explosion of saris being made by uh European and also American designers for their audiences. And it's really fascinating to see the way that Princess Karam is imaged and represented in these magazines because I think part of the fascination for the readers and for the designers who were kind of captivated with with her was this way that she could sort of wear quote-unquote modern clothes and then the quote-unquote traditional sari, you know, that she could sort of move between these two different identities. She was always Indian, you know, she was never not going to be a woman of color. She was never, you know, in the context of the 30s, not going to be colonized. But she was able to sort of move between these two kinds of fashion in a way that I think people found particularly fascinating. And the sari, as it was marketed to women in that period, I think what's interesting about looking at how it's described in the magazines is that it's positioned as this exciting garment that is different from anything. And of course there were bias cut dresses were the fashion at the time. And so the sari is a wrapped garment. So it's a long length of fabric that's wrapped around the body in different ways. So the idea of sort of spiraling fabric around the body was just a different construction method from what was typical at the time. And so I think that was, you know, how it was described as sort of offering like a different... A different kind of garment, a different drape, a different construction. And women were assured, like, don't worry, this isn't a costume, this isn't a masquerade, it's still very modern. And so, um, in some articles, they would say, like, oh, you know, the scarf that you can drape over your head, you could also drape around your shoulders. So you can sort of change it as the night goes on. And they like go so far as to sort of instruct how to change how you, how you wear the garment. So as to assure women, like, it's not going to look like you're in, in costume. You're not going to turn into an Indian woman. Like, don't worry, you're, you'll still be a modern white woman. And you see representations of it with, you know, women holding cigarettes, which are often uh, used as a signifier for modernity. So it's, it's really interesting to see the kind of negotiation that happens in the marketing of these garments within the fashion magazines themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I and I like the story of um, Princess Karam too because she reminds me a lot of Queen Sirikit, who kind of uh, the Queen Sirikit of Thailand. We did an episode on her, um, who similarly vacillated between Thai national dress and Parisian couture, and she really captured the public's imagination in the nineteen sixties, um, and still to this very day, actually. So we focused on the 20s and 30s today, but this ethnic masquerade by no means in there, it's rampant throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, moving into the very century within which we all live. And it's very clear that fashion still very much has both a cultural appropriation problem and a diversity problem. Can you talk about some of the more problematic fashion magazine editorials and covers from, say, the last 20 years um Kira Knightley in Kenya is a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, so the spread with Kira Knightley, it was
2: interesting for me to look at in the context. I was I was doing some research on some photographs by Irving Penn of Africans in that were published in Vogue uh, under uh Dinah editorship. In the late '60s and early '70s, so there's a spread about Morocco, there's a spread about Dahomey, and there's a spread about Cameroon. And so I was kind of interested in thinking about like like when else is Africa represented in in Vogue? And I that's how I stumbled on the the Kira Knightley spread. She's photographed in Kenya, so it's kind of it's kind of in some ways like a typical spread for for Vogue. And you can these happen like you know every few years. I feel like where they're like a oh, celebrity and a place and we're going to like (laughs) photograph them in these beautiful landscapes and so the one with karen Knightley, it's basically like out of africa like that was clearly the reference the the film with meryl streep and she's very much in kind of colonialist attire and then um, you have maasai uh people who kind of appear as props. Like there's there's no other way to say it in, in the photographs. And there's a real long history of Maasai people being used in all different kinds of European and American popular culture, but certainly fashion for sure. And, you know, there's all kinds of appropriations of Maasai jewelry and garments and textiles and all that kind of stuff too. But yeah, you know, this was just like a, such a clear usage of these particular kinds of colonial narratives. And, and Out of Africa is, of course, a film based on the, the book, but it's, you know, the story of the, a white woman finding herself and finding her strength in Africa. So, you know, in some ways we see this repetition of this narrative of, you know, white women sort of finding liberation through, through Africa um, or, you know, through Orientalism, you know, so that's a sort of similar narrative all the way through. Even like a few decades before the Kira Knightley spread, there was one in the 80s with Kim Basinger that looks really similar, um, where it's sort of using African landscape and the idea of a safari as the backdrop for shooting a celebrity and presenting this kind of celebrity narrative and tying it up with this kind of colonial fantasy. Even the place that Keira Knightley um, was photographed at, this kind of safari camp that you can go to, I I don't know if it's, it's still there in Kenya, but like... It seemed to me when I researched it that the Safari camp itself was kind of trafficking in some of these ideas, these kind of colonial images that that you know remind you of of out of Africa and are sort of harkening back to kind of nineteenth century colonialism and and images of like you know opening up your Louis Vuitton case and, you know, pulling out all of your, you know, beautiful supplies to be in your gorgeous tent in Kenya served by, you know, people, um, Maasai people or something like that. So it still happens. It keeps happening. There's also a lot of um, kind of Orientalist editorials that you see from time to time in magazines, sometimes even that like language of, of Oriental, like the word Oriental is still used in fashion in totally problematic ways because as I said, it doesn't, it doesn't like refer to anywhere or anyone. <laughs> um, it's made up. Um, but it's still often used as though it has like meaning and though it's referring to like specific people in a specific place. So, and you know, something like um Pharrell Williams, who appeared on the cover of L UK um in 2014 in a war bonnet, you know, I think the fact that these kinds of editorials are still getting to the finish line right now tells us so much about who's in charge at these magazines. Um, and I think makes a lot of sense of the great Andre Leon who referred to Anna Wintour as a colonial dame. Oh
0: my gosh. Yeah, it just
2: yes. look at the images she produces. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's all there, so, yeah, so they're still very much with us. And I think until, you know, those mag- magazines take a real deep look at what they're doing and what they're selling, they're going to they're gonna keep being there um, and that will keep happening. And until they employ creatives who are creatives of color. Harper's Bazaar in the U.S. just got a new editor who's a woman of color. So um, maybe, maybe things, are, things are on the verge of changing, but um, it's, it's hard to know. So it's a long history those magazines have to overcome.
0: Absolutely. And on that closing note, uh, Vicky, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. This was such an incredibly fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. I appreciate it.
1: Vicky, thank you so much for being here. And uh, you are absolutely correct that this colonialist white-centered narratives of fashion magazines will never truly change until the internal structures of the magazines do so. I mean, this is something that we talk about again and again and again on the podcast. You know, Harper's Bazaar just hired Samira Nurser as editor-in-chief. And this is definitely a step in the right direction, but the industry still has a long way to go. And we're going to keep talking about it until it gets there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to take time, but we're seeing really positive developments, including the creation of different Black-led collectives, including the Black and Fashion Council launched by Teen Vogue Editor-in-Chief, Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, and Fashion publicist Sandrine Charles. Uh, the council was founded to, quote, represent and secure the advancement of Black individuals in the fashion and beauty industry. And as a collective, we envision a world in which Black people in fashion and beauty spaces can be open and honest, guaranteed equal rights, and be celebrated for our voices, end quote. And you can find more about their work at blackinfashioncouncil.com and on Instagram at Black in Fashion Council.
1: If you would like to learn more about Dr. Pass's research on fashioning the white feminine, you can follow her on Instagram at visual sustenance. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the ramifications of historic and contemporary incarnations of the ethnic masquerade next time you get dressed.
0: Remember to tune in this Thursday for our mini-sode where we alternate between answering your fashion history mystery queries and sharing all things fashion history happening in the world today. And we love hearing from you, so if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram on dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. And of course you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. As
1: always, a very special thanks to our producers, Casey Grimm, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeart who makes the show possible each and every week. We will see you all on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Dress, the history of fashion is a production of iHeart Radio. For more podcasts from iHeart visit the iHeart app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.